Welcome to the latest edition of the Crossroads podcast. I'm John Burke, America's editor with information. Joining me this morning is Jeff Strong, senior partner and co-head of Apollo Global Management's infrastructure and natural resources platforms. Thanks for joining us today, Jeff. Thanks for having me on, John. I'm excited to be with you. Great. So um, you currently run the infrastructure platform alongside Dylan Fu. Uh, and more recently, Strong had also led uh, the asset manager's $1 billion acquisition of a portfolio of equity stakes in conventional, renewable, and midstream energy assets held by GE Capital's uh, EFS Group. Uh, those assets would form the backbone of Apollo's first infrastructure fund. Uh, today, we will talk to uh, Jeff about Apollo's efforts on its infrastructure platform today, and also his views on renewables, uh, particularly as it remains a hub of MNA activity. So Jeff, let's start by talking about um, your role within Apollo infrastructure uh, and working alongside Dylan Fu and what the strategy is going to be at a higher level in terms of both um, sectors and uh, geographies Apollo will be focusing on. Yeah, happy to do that. So uh, I, I joined Apollo uh, a little over eight years ago. Uh, so it's been the better part of a decade now and I've been focusing on uh, infrastructure and infrastructure related investing uh, you know, through that time. Uh, my co-head of infrastructure, Dylan Fu, joined, uh, joined the firm last year from AMP Capital. Um, and Dylan brings a really fantastic track record and, and a very complimentary background to, to that of my own to help me uh, uh, lead and grow the business from here. So he, his background has been more around communications and transportation and some of these other sectors that touch infrastructure, whereas my background has been more on power, renewables, uh, LNG, water, some of the things that touch more of the energy value chain. So together, we've, we've really kind of touched um, most of the, the broader infrastructure sector. So, uh, you know, at Apollo, what we've done historically is, is actually we've been quite active within infrastructure. So we've, we've deployed about $20 billion uh, into infrastructure-related investments uh, throughout the firm's history. Um, about $9 billion of that has been related to, to equity investments, which is the, the strategy that Dylan and I specifically um, oversee. You know, at a high level, um, while we do have a, a global mandate, uh, you know, we tend to focus, you know, primarily in the infrastructure side, more, you know, North America and Western Europe and some of those, some of those markets. And then the key focus sectors are, you know, renewables, communications, transportation, and maybe to, to some extent uh, midstream and some of the ancillary areas um, uh, around that as well. The last thing I would say is uh, a big part of what we've done historically has been uh, not just renewables, but just ESG and sustainability broadly. That's a really important uh, part of our platform at Apollo, not just in infrastructure, but across the firm. I think infrastructure is an area where we, we really uh, you know, place particular emphasis on that. Um, and that's something that our LPs are increasingly focused on as well. Uh, but, but we've got, a, I think, a very extensive and strong track record in renewables um, and, and that area uh, that really is, is benefiting from the broader energy transition that we're seeing today. Uh, great. Thank you for that. And I think you may have answered a question I was going to ask later about ESG policy at Apollo. Um, so mission accomplished. Um, so the infrastructure and energy investing worlds uh, have converged uh, in both solar and wind. Uh, 
eh, biomass and some other alternative energy sources, maybe a little bit less. Uh, but the key here is competition seems to be around the corner for uh, both um, opportunities uh, that present development risk as well as mature renewable uh, sources, depending on what level of investor you are. Um, what, do you, what do you believe is really going to be the innovation going forward in renewable investing um, going forward? Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's, you know, really important to take a, you know, kind of a big step back when talking about um, the mix of energy sources uh, in this country and, and where we think renewables are going. You know, even in the last decade, we've seen, uh, you know, an enormous increase in the penetration of renewables into the broader energy value chain. So whether that's power generation or storage or, you know, other aspects that are more sustainability driven demand response um, in some certain power markets, there's been a big push for this that's been driven, you know, at some level by policy but increasingly just by economics, as the economics of, of renewable energy have, have gotten stronger and stronger, less reliant on government subsidies, you know, we've seen this, this really start to grow uh, and take off. I think you're going to see, you know, some, some significant increases in areas like storage and, and some of the ancillary parts that are, that are just going to be necessary. So if you think about, you know, wind and solar not running, you know, all the time, you're going to need something to provide power to offset that, that intermittency. And I think that's going to be, you know, a growing, a growing need here um, uh, as, we, as we move forward. The other big, I think, component of, of, of the change that we're seeing is going to be driven by an increased focus on climate change. And so as, you know, governments and individuals in the private sector start to think more and more about climate change and adopt policies that are climate driven, uh, I think you'll see a lot of innovation around that. So, so for example, not just changing the types of, of power generation or encouraging electric vehicles or things like that, but thinking very clearly about transmission lines. California has been very focused on this recently uh, with what, you know, they, they, they've come to conclude are, are wildfires that have been caused by climate change. So looking for ways to harden the grid. This is going to require significant infrastructure uh, investing to make that all happen. And I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of innovation around that. The last thing I would say is, you know, the, the other kind of innovation that we think about a lot, Apollo, is sort of, you know, financial innovation or capital structure innovation. And I think one of the core pillars of our strategy around infrastructure has been what we call structured solutions. So making investments in projects and something other than just the common equity and looking for ways to further protect our downside and make the overall economic proposition for the project more attractive. So we're continuing to look for ways to innovate there where we can add our expertise around, around uh, structuring deals and being a financial partner uh, to investments to create real value for our investors and also our partners in these deals. Great, and, and alongside those lines, uh, the announcement yesterday from Governor uh, Cuomo about um, doing electrical vehicle charging stations and making a $750 million commitment, I, I suppose, goes along those lines as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, we, we've definitely seen a big increase in the, um, you know, in the penetration for electric vehicles. Uh, you may have seen Apollo recently announced a transaction involving a, couple, a company called uh, Fisker, which is an electric vehicle company. Um, there's, there's clearly some trends uh, headed in that direction. 
but it's going to require some investment in infrastructure. Again, you, you're going to need more power to, to power all of these electric vehicles because instead of consuming gasoline, they'll consume power. So it's going to require more power. It's going to require more transmission, and it's going to recharge, require that kind of charging infrastructure that was announced by Governor Cuomo. Uh, can you talk about the Fisker uh, investment? Um, it'd be good to hear what, what these guys do and what their role is going to be here. Think about it, you know, at a high level, there's, there are some public filings out there and, uh, because it is a public company situation. I'll probably be somewhat limited in what I can and cannot say, but um, uh, effectively we announced a, a merger with Fisker Inc. Uh, via our, uh, uh, the SPAC that Apollo uh, uh, manages, a company called Spartan Energy Acquisition Corp. So it's a, it's a combination that will effectively, as of closing, uh, make Fisker a publicly traded company um, alongside companies, obviously Tesla being, you know, by far the leader in the space, but other companies that are in the public market now looking to to capture these trends, whether it's Nikola or Hylion or some of these others, uh, you know, Fisker would be a, a, another player in that space. And it's a company that we think is, is really well situated uh, to take a meaningful uh, chunk of that market share. Great. So going back to uh, solar and wind, um, you know, we talk a lot, as much as we talk about M&A, there's always the backdrop of, of policy as well as, um, you know, the success or failure in the U.S. seems to hinge on things like federal tax credits and the ability to um, bring in tax equity uh, to, um, you know, fund the, these projects on both both sides of the, the fence, if you will. Um, do you believe that the structure has to change at some point to make it even more efficient for wind and solar production in this country, uh, given given how you know some of these folks that are in the production of solar and wind seem to just you know be be reliant you know on tax credits being renewed and and a healthy tax equity industry, if you will. Great question. So um, historically, I think that has absolutely been the case, and what we've seen recently though has been a lot of innovation making you know, wind turbines more efficient, making solar panels more efficient, and getting closer and closer to reaching grid parity with traditional or fossil uh, sources of, of power generation. So our view is that over time, uh, a lot of this renewable energy development will become less dependent on, on subsidies uh, from, the, from the federal level. Now, that being said, uh, the subsidies are there, and there are a lot of projects, depending on the individual characteristics of that project, that do, re do require that or rely on it. But again, you know, that, the, the trends of making these projects more efficient, costs coming down, uh, they are achieving what's called grid parity with, with many other sources of power generation. Uh, take Europe, for example, where we've seen offshore wind as an example. Uh, effectively reach grid parity and not be reliant on, on any sort of subsidies. So we think that's, that's the trend that's happening. That being said, that's not the case across the board. And so, you know, we still see these, you know, the federal incentives, whether it's through the tax, tax equity and tax credit structures that we talked about, or at the state level where a lot of states are providing PPAs or OREC's to, to incentivize the, the, uh, the development of renewable energy assets. They will play an important role during this during this transition period. And so, you know, to your question, it's 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 much better for the developers and the investors in these projects to have clarity on what those structures and incentives look like. And 
And the worst thing for a project, especially a long dated project, is to have uncertainty around really any of the components of where the money's coming from because it just sort of slows everything else down. So I, I do think getting you know, a little bit more clarity on where those programs stand, whether it's increasing them or terminating them altogether, that'll allow the industry, the developers, the investors to operate with you know, a, a clear set of facts um, and, and, and allow them to make the assumptions on what the deal looks like. But the, the worst thing for a capital investment, especially for long-dated fixed infrastructure assets like this, is uncertainty. So whatever that certainty may be, I, th I think would be it would be much better to, you know, have 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 a little bit more stability and visibility into what that program looks like. Great. Um, there seems to be a very robust demand for renewable projects in LATAM. Um, uh, Chile comes to mind uh, among a father, among some other geographies. Um, does that uh, present an interesting opportunity for you guys, or do you believe there's just too much sovereign risk associated with projects such as these? I think it's it's a it's a really good question, and it's a complicated question. So whenever we look at new investments, really across the platform, we have to take into account all of those risk factors um, because our, our our most important job is protecting the capital that's been entrusted to us by uh, the pensioners and others who, who invest in our funds. And so we, we take that obligation very, very seriously. So we are, we do look at sovereign risk. We look at currency risk. We look at the risk of some rules or laws or, or something changing in given markets. And, and it's very important to us that there's a very clear pattern of, you know, predictable rule of law and the validity of contracts and all of that in, in the investments that we make. So, but we do have a global mandate. We have funds across the firm that can target, you know, different different areas um, and focus on different different types of markets. Um, I would say for you know a traditional infrastructure fund, which is looking for you know low risk, very predictable cash flow streams, uh, lower volatility in the investments that it makes, and inflation protection, which is an important component when you think about currency issues that may be overlaying a project. You know, for some of those kind of lower risk uh, funds, it may be a little harder to invest in in certain emerging markets or markets that have less less stable currencies. So we kind of we look at everything. We have a global mandate, uh, but those are definitely issues that we have to take into account whenever we, we look at an investment. Great. Uh, let's go back to energy storage uh, for a sec here. Um, we've uh, seemingly covered a lot in our uh, stories as of late more the sense of uh, battery storage uh, developers um, not really getting there on, on operational assets yet, but putting assets under development and um, looking for clear equity partners um, to uh, come in and help uh, defray the costs associated with development of these projects. Other folks we talked to say that the, the storage industry still needs a lot of work, you know, to get to, you know, notwithstanding the demand, which we all understand here, but that it still needs a lot of work into to getting into the phase where it's investable. Um, definitely wanted to just get your view on this, on um, where you think we are and where you think we need to go to get the energy storage space uh, to a more mature level. Yeah, this is one of the most important uh, topics out there for sure in, in renewable energy. Um, we have uh, spent a lot of time and have had a lot of exposure to uh, battery storage and energy storage projects. 
uh, around the U.S. and have been involved with, you know, one of the largest battery storage projects in the world. So th this is this is something we, we've spent a lot of time thinking about. And, and just to reset the topic, there are hours in the day when the sun is not shining. There's times when the wind is blowing, you know, very strong, and there's times when it's not blowing at all. And so, you know, we call this in renewable energy the intermittency of renewables. And so unlike a coal plant, which can just burn at the same level continuously 24-7, or a natural gas plant, a combined cycle gas plant can do the same thing, that's not true of, of wind and solar. So you have to find a way to offset that, either by storing that excess energy that's created during, you know, the peak sun hours or the peak wind hours, storing it and using it later, the way to do that is, is with batteries, or, and there's, there's a few other techniques as well, but that's, that's really kind of the, the main focus. So we spent a lot of time looking at that issue, and you're absolutely right that, that you know, on its own, the investments in some of these energy storage opportunities are, are not always, um, are not obvi obviously compelling. Um, uh, it really depends on the very, you know, the, the, the site-specific idiosyncratic issues that are going on with each location. And in some locations and in some hubs, uh, you're going to find that the energy storage is much more compelling uh, economic proposition, and in others, that's not going to be the case. This is going to be an issue that gets solved by the industry. It's going to get solved by batteries becoming more and more efficient. And yes, it's going to get solved by subsidies to some extent during a period of time. But if you want to have, you know, a really steep, quick ramp in renewable energy, and have it displace more and more fossil-based generation, we're going to have to solve. Uh, we're going to have to solve this issue. And so we, you know, we've seen, um, you know, some states take a, you know, pretty aggressive view around this. California, for example, providing a lot of subsidies around uh, battery storage. Um, and so we're, you know, you're going to need to see some, some more and more of this um, to really kind of accelerate that. But uh, it is very, very clear, um, and we've talked to a lot of experts in battery technology. This technology is emerging very, very quickly, and we do expect over time it to get more and more economic and for these projects start to, to, to begin to stand on their own. But for the time being, uh, we're not quite there, and, and a lot of these, these projects, to make economic sense, do require some level of subsidy. Just to expand on that a little bit, were there any other, were there any promising like federal programs out there that you've observed that it's going to, you know, come and become more visible, you know, that, that applies to this? So far, what we've seen has been more at, at the state level, and I should have mentioned before, too, that this isn't just happening with government subsidies. I mean, we are seeing a lot of big, major public companies do things to subsidize this for their own purposes. So, you know, very, very large companies are out there signing PPAs, signing deals to support um, storage projects. Um, in part because those companies have decided it's the right thing to do. They've decided it makes economic sense that they're large consumers of, of energy and electricity. And then, you know, the other, the other big push in this direction is coming from a lot of shareholders. So we've seen BlackRock and others make big announcements around trying to get companies to di divest uh, fossil generation or reduce their carbon footprint or Im improve their sustainability profile. This is a very real trend and a very real development being led by you know, large institutional shareholders, pension funds who hold very, very large stakes in public companies around the world. So their shareholders are kind of pushing, in, pushing them in this direction. And they can, in some ways, provide a little bit of a role that government uh, does not. 
But to answer your question specifically, what we've seen has been a little bit more at the state level than at the federal level. Now we're all kind of quickly digesting, you know, some of the announcements that were made by uh, presidential candidate Joe Biden and what his administration might try and do. We do have an election coming up very soon, and, and we suspect that you know those two administrations would treat these issues very, very differently. So um, I think stay tuned to see how that election, you know, what, what it happens. And then I think a Department of Energy under a President Biden probably looks quite a bit different from a Department of Energy under President Trump. So that'll be, I think, a, an important uh, development that we'll know, you know, we'll have more clarity on in the next few months. Great. And to conclude, uh, obviously, in today's times that we're living in, uh, just going back to your natural resources background, um, just a lot of conventional drillers have obviously filed for bankruptcy um, as oil prices remain at a very low price and obviously uneconomical to, to drill in the U.S. Um, if you could just quickly, you know, get a higher level, give your view on sort of the outlook for the industry um, and, um, you know, what changes uh, do you think need to take place here? I know it's not a short answer, but um, if you could just give us uh, your best best shot at this, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, I'm uh, the co-head of infrastructure and natural resources at Apollo. Um, we do run those as two very separate businesses with you know very different um, you know risk return objectives. The infrastructure business being you know a much more you know sort of a, a lower risk uh, uh, investment strategy that's focused on you know, contracted cash flows, contracted renewable power generation and things like that. But the natural resources business historically has had exposure, you know, up and down the energy value chain, including you know, some exposure with oil and gas and, and, and traditional energy. So we, we have seen some of this and, and we, we, we follow this very closely. I think we've got uh, several internal proprietary macro studies that we've done a, a, around all of this. Um, and, and I think have a pretty strong view of both kind of the short, medium term and the longer term uh, outlook for, for the sector. Taking a step back, what we've seen over the last decade has been very profound in this country. And, and I'm not sure it really gets enough uh, attention, but the U.S. has gone from producing, you know, five or six million barrels a day to, you know, up to a peak of over 13 million barrels a day of oil which for a period of time made it the largest oil producer in the world. Uh, this had you know, profound economic uh, uh, implications and geopolitical implications for, for a lot of reasons that, that, that are probably intuitive for folks who follow the industry. Uh, and then this has obviously knock-on effects of making you know, byproducts uh, a lot cheaper to develop, whether that's chemicals or other industrial, industrial outputs. Uh, it's created a lot of jobs, not just with the, the drillers, but the, the midstream companies, the companies who provide services to each of these businesses, the, all the way all the way down to the end user who has benefited from you know extremely low gasoline prices over the last few years. All of that's been because the U.S. has increased production. The rest of the world has not. So this excess supply that's brought price down has been largely a, a U.S.-driven phenomenon. So it's had a, a very significant impact. That lower price, though, has you know created clearly some pressure on on these companies, some of whom have, have put a lot of debt onto their businesses, and that's led to the bankruptcies that, that you're talking about. I think over time, what we expect to happen is for the U.S. production levels to decline somewhat, and it's already happening as 
the number of rigs running in the U.S. Has, has really fallen off very significantly this year. It's even down a little bit last year. So that's going to, we think, create uh, lead to more of an equilibrium where, where the U.S. probably producing a little bit less, you know, maybe something like 10 million barrels a day or, or lower, um, but still a significant non, uh, amount of oil and is still a top three oil producer globally. But it gets to more of an equilibrium point where the U.S. and then the OPEC producing countries kind of act as that swing producer where you produce a little bit more uh, when there's a shortage and a little bit less when, when there seems to be a surplus. Uh, the U.S. obviously can't act as a cartel, and these things are all driven by individual decisions by thousands of companies, but it is a very economic decision. If the price is too low, people are just going to drill less. So we, that's how we, we expect that to play out over time. That, that, that will have a pretty significant knock-on effect through the rest of the value chain. It will impact you know, not just the companies that drill for the oil or the companies who own the rigs and provide the services or provide the frac crews, but it's also going to impact the, the midstream companies who rely on volumes flowing through their pipelines. It's going to impact the refineries who make, you know, the gasoline. Uh, it'll have impacts for, you know, the, the availability of energy just broadly defined to the manufacturing sector to the U.S., um, so, you know, that, that'll be something that we see play out over the next 12 to 24 months. In the very, very near term, obviously, demand has been depressed significantly from COVID-19, which led to lockdown orders across the country and around the world. Uh, while that was happening, people weren't driving, and road transportation accounts for about 45% of, of global demand for oil. So when no one's driving, no one's flying airplanes, you know, the demand really cratered, and that's what led to the, the price collapse. As we've seen the economy start to reopen, people driving again, uh, we do expect that to normalize and get closer to that equilibrium level that, that we talked about. Uh, our view is we should continue to expect to see a lot of volatility around this, uh, driven both by the demand side. If, if there's an increasing wave of coronavirus cases that lead to more lockdown orders, you'll see demand fall again. That'll create increases in storage levels that'll drive price down. Uh, but this, you know, we would expect there to be, you know, a, a bumpy ride until we're back to a more normalized demand uh, demand outlook. But over the longer term, we do think the U.S. will continue to play an important role in production of oil and gas on a global basis. Great. Well, I uh, wanted to thank again, Jeff, uh, for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. And uh, that's about all the time we have. Uh, Burke out.